after the Passover meal in the upper room, Jesus and his friends entered the garden singing hymns and speaking quietly. They walked up the hill of Gethsemane through the olive trees. There were only 11 now as one had proven to be no friend at all. And there Jesus falls on his face in prayer, his friend sleeping just a stone's throw away. Let the cup pass, he cries. Father, if it's possible, let the cup pass. But your will be done. Your will be done, Father. The Father held out the cup and Jesus looks in and what he sees causes great agony. And he presses his forehead deep into the dirt which softens into mud when mingled with his tears and sweat and blood. And Jesus would drink from this cup. The glory of the Father would be vindicated and the name of Jesus would be glorified. And the ones that the Father had given him would see the glory of God and they would enjoy him forever. Jesus would drink on behalf of the rescue mission of the world. Just then, Jesus sees the line of torches. The mob had arrived. Judas kissed, a sword flashes, and a servant is healed by the one who had healed so many, so many times before. His friends flee, the soldiers arrest, and Jesus is thrown into a world of mockery and torture. His trial is a sham as liars lie and mockers mock. God claims to be God and it's called blasphemy. The very face of God is slapped and punched and spit on. He's dragged to the court of the high priest and Jesus catches a glimpse of Peter. He too has betrayal in his eyes. And as the rooster crowed, Peter flees and weeps for mercy and forgiveness. Jesus is taken to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. And there the priest had gathered a crowd that leveled their charges against Jesus. They said, this man forbids us to pay tribute to Caesar and he calls himself a king. Pilate questions Jesus and he finds no guilt, nor does King Herod. So Pilate offers to release Jesus, but they choose freedom for the murderer of Barabbas instead. What should I do with Jesus of Nazareth, Pilate asked. And the mob thundered back, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate washes his hands and delivers the innocent one to death. Jesus is stripped of his robe and is whipped across his back and legs 39 times plus one. The metal and the glass embedded in the whip tear into tissue and muscle, ripping flesh from bone. And Jesus is beaten so severely that he no longer looks human. A purple robe, which is not his own, is wrapped around him and clings to his open wounds. They give him a a stick to hold, a mock scepter. A soldier fashions a crown from a thorn branch and beats the crown down on the head of Jesus. And then the robe is ripped off of Jesus, as is the flesh that had adhered to the fabric. Jesus is now beaten and bloody, and the cross is dropped into his shoulders. The weight of the beam proves too much and a man in the crowd is forced to carry the beam for him. The man is Simon of Cyrene, a man that Jesus has known by name before there was time. It's now nine o'clock Friday morning and Jesus walks on beyond the city gates to a garbage dump named Golgotha, the place of the skull. On top of the hill, a centurion hands Jesus a cup. It's wine mixed with myrrh, which is a mild narcotic to dull the pain. But Jesus does not drink of this cup. 
because this is not the Father's cup. A soldier strips Jesus naked, adding insult and humiliation to the spectacle of this brutal torture. And he's laid down on the beam, his arms are stretched as wide as they would go. And a cold spike is placed against his wrist. The hammer is lifted, striking the spike, and the Son of God is pinned to the crossbeam. And pain fires across the nerves that Jesus himself had designed. Jesus is lifted on the crossbeam and his body sags as he is held only by the spikes in his wrist. His feet are pressed together, extended, toes down, and a spike is driven through the arch of each. And Jesus pushes up in an effort to take a breath and the splinters from the post pierce his lacerated back. He can inhale but not exhale and his compressed heart is struggling to pump blood to the torn tissue. He looks down now at the soldiers who are gambling for his clothes. And he pushes himself up through the violent pain to pray aloud, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And then he sags again in silence. But the crowd is not silent. The crowd shouts, he's saved others, let him save himself. If you are the Christ, come down off of that cross. Save yourself, King of the Jews. The criminal on the left joins the mockery, but the thief to his right repents, and Jesus pushes himself up to say to him, truly today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus looks down again and sees his mother, and he looks to his friend John, he says, he is now your son, and she is now your mother. Christ is not made a sinner, nor is he punished for any sin of his own. Instead, the Father treated him as if he were a sinner by charging to his account the sins of everyone who would believe. He is personally pure, yet officially culpable. He is personally holy, yet forensically guilty. And all of those sins were charged against him as if he had personally committed them. He was punished with the penalty of them on the cross. It was that moment that he experienced the Father's cup. Omnipotent Hatred and anger for sin poured out on his only son. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in a final gasp, the Son of God pushes himself up again and proclaims, it is finished. Condemnation is finished. Despair is finished. Hopelessness is finished. Self-righteousness is finished. Shame is finished. Guilt is finished. The curse is finished. Sin is finished. Death is finished. Because it is in Jesus that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This Jesus who is the image of the invisible God, this Jesus who is before all things, and in him all things are held together. This Jesus who is the head of the body, the church. This Jesus who is the beginning and the end. This Jesus in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. You see, this Jesus is the difference maker for mankind because he is the lamb, he is the branch, he is the gate, he is the light of the world, he is the bread of life, he is living water, he is the way, he is the redeemer, he is savior. 
And you who were once estranged and hostile in your mind, doing evil, Jesus has now reconciled in his fleshly body through his death so as to present you holy and blameless and free from accusation before him. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only true God, our only Savior, our King, be glory, majesty, power, authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all time, now and forever. Amen. can take a seat and let's pray. Father, we uh, come here tonight being honest with you that faith is hard, uh, but feeling pain is daily and it's all the time. God, we come to you tonight telling you that belief and trust is a challenge, but screwing up seems easy. Doing the things we don't want to do comes what too oftentimes feels so natural. And so, God, we pray tonight that you would grant faith, that we would begin to understand that this night where we look sin eye to eye, uh, that we would understand that sin is not a distant reality and that anguish isn't somewhere out there, but it's right here. It's right in front of us, and God, maybe more than anything, that tonight we would see and taste that you understand. God, that we would understand how much you actually understand, how much you've actually tasted yourself. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So tonight, uh, Good Friday, is a dark and somber time. It's a time that we are meant to look at sin, pain, anguish, exhaustion. We could come up with all kinds of words directly in the face. But what's really important is that we look at Jesus. And Jesus is so interesting when you slow down in the Gospels um, to watch him. Because Jesus has this regular pattern in his life throughout the Gospels of looking He looks at people in situations that we would never look at and that people in the Gospels weren't looking at. They were passing them by. There's this consistent pattern of Jesus looking and then feeling deeply, and then he acts, looking, feeling, and acting. And we see it through Matthew, through Mark, through Luke, through John, these books that are called the Gospels, that record the narrative of Jesus' life. But tonight we celebrate Jesus' passion. That's the word the church is given when he is moving up this hill called Golgotha, ultimately to the point of his death. And it's recorded very slowly in almost every single gospel. But Jesus' pattern of looking, feeling, and acting is just the same. So you watch Jesus as he's getting scourged and as he's being punched. And you watch as it slows down that he looks at the soldiers, the very ones who are punching him, the very ones that are shaming him, and the ones that are mocking him. 
And as he begins this journey that he's going to carry his very own cross, there are all these people that are walking by, if you study history, that executions in the Roman Empire become so commonplace that people are just walking by like, oh, there's another one. There's another one. And there's no question in my mind that at that moment, Jesus looks at these numbed people and he stares them in the eyes and he says internally to himself what so many of us say on a day in and day out basis, whether we verbalize it or whether we groan it, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And I'm certain at those moments, he looked at little kids who should be horrified and would just walk by, but they were numbed reminds me of a story of a little kindergarten girl at my kid's school who's a Syrian refugee. One of my friends went up to her and said, hey, I have some friends who are in Syria. And this little girl's first response was, oh, what kind of guns do they carry? Just so natural and so normal that that's normal life in Syria. She's so numbed. But I'm also convinced that Jesus caught the eye of children who were not yet numbed, who were just innocent, but they were horrified and they were scared and they were asking their parents or their uncles and aunts or those who were taking care of them, what is happening? And he caught their eyes. He saw them. He looked. You see Jesus looking consistently on this journey as well. He sees. You see this at the end of John as this is moving through that he looks and Paul just read of this and he sees his mother A mother whom in him was all of the miraculous that led to her praising God. Mary, there's no way that this is going to happen. But an angel appeared to her and now her son is being battered, beaten, scourged, bleeding, and is about to be crucified on a cross and she's losing all hope. And he sees her in her hopelessness, in her fear, and in her horror. And right next to her is Mary Magdalene, this woman whom it says Jesus had cast out seven demons. If you know anything about the horrors of this kind of spiritual warfare, is likely Mary Magdalene had had things done to her that no one would ever want done to her. That she had not been shamed, just shamed, but isolated. She had likely had horrific things done to her by other people, but certainly by the demonic. This woman who had been liberated is now watching Jesus enslaved and he sees her. He knows exactly where she is at this moment. All the way to the cross that Jesus sees and looks at his enemies. And he doesn't just see those who are wanting to kill him. He says, here are men whom have mothers and fathers. Here are men who got caught up in the system. Here are men who are just trying to protect themselves and commanding orders. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus is constantly looking and seeing But this pattern doesn't just stop at looking. And it doesn't just stop in the Gospels. Folks, he sees you. Right now, Jesus sees you where you are. In your shame. In your horror. In your abandonment. In your guilt. The same way he saw the thief on the cross who was so horrified and so guilty. And knew his guilt that he said, don't forget me, Jesus. Right now, when you sit in your guilt... 
And the things you don't want to do, you continue to do. Or the things that you did 15 years ago sit at your very feet right now and you can smell the reality of their consequences. He sees you. In your loneliness, he sees you. But here's the amazing part of Jesus is he doesn't just see. He feels it. There's this amazing passage in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter four that says Jesus is our greatest representative, a great high priest. And we don't have this amazing representative, this advocate, this high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. He sympathizes. This word that means has fellow feeling. That when you're lonely, Jesus not just knows what it is to be lonely, he feels your loneliness. He feels your guilt. He doesn't just see it. He sympathizes. He empathizes with it. As your heartstrings are struck, his heartstrings are struck. As the consequences of sin that you have done or that's been done to you sits in front of you and you can taste it, you can smell it, you can feel it. It keeps you up at night. You have sleepless nights and you have moments that you want to medicate it. He feels it with you. He's horrified by it as it brings chills and at times aches to your joints these realities that you feel. You don't just know, you feel them physically. He feels them with you. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. The broken relationships that you have, that you hide from and that you run from, and yet create an empty pit in your stomach, whether those distant, fractured relationships are way out there or they're still existing in your very own home. He feels with you. He sees us. And he feels with us as he did then, he's doing now. The thing is, you know about Jesus is he was so horrified by the consequences and disastrous darkness of sin and what it does to real people's lives. Folks, sin is not a concept, it's a reality. Physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, Spiritual pain is all in the world because of sin. It is an up-close and personal reality that none of us get away from. He sees it and he feels it and he hates it more than any of us do. This is why you see Jesus at this moment, the night before he's going to the cross, he's pleading with his disciples, would you pray for me as I pray? And he falls down upon his face and he's pleading with the father going, father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He goes back, his disciples are sleeping, and he's like, can you not keep watch with me for just a few moments? Would you pray with me? And he goes back and it says he's sweating blood. And he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, but if not, not my will be done, but yours. He doesn't just see you and feel, he acts. He acts and he says, Father, if you have this cup for me, I'm going to drink it. Now, I want you to hear this phrase resound tonight. Greater love has no one than this. That one lays down their life for their friends. 
Jesus falls upon his face, pleading that the cup would pass from him. And he has another prayer that night. This prayer where he's saying, now's the moment, Father, glorify me as we were glorified in the beginning. The unique thing about Jesus asking to be glorified is that he wouldn't be exalted and glorified like a triumphal warrior on a horse, conquesting, saying, aren't I great? But he's falling to his face, sweating blood in anguish over the disastrous consequences of sin. And so therefore he prays, Lord, I pray for those that you've given me, that they would be one even as I am in you and you are in me. He is so passionate and he recognizes this. Sin is, fundamentally, is the disintegration of what God always meant to be together. We were made by and for Jesus Christ. We were made by and for God. Sin disintegrates it. We were meant to be in union with ourselves heart, soul, mind, and strength is disintegrated. We were meant to be in union with one another, and yet relational disharmony is maybe the greatest, most catastrophic, biggest thing that keeps us up at night, disintegration. And he's saying, Lord, let them be in us and let them be one with each other. Folks, Jesus is pouring out and picturing for us the Father of Father's heart. And that is such a hard word because there are so many of us in this room that may have not even known a father or had a horrible father, but we know a great father looks and when there's disharmony in the family, he sees it, his heart is struck by it and he goes, I'm gonna act in whatever possible way I can to fix this. This moment that we read throughout the Gospels in which the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon sin. And he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. We, many of us can't stand this word wrath. But here's the thing. Any person that you love deeply, you hate that which destroys the one you love. Am I right? You hate it and you're willing, you hate it and you want to pour forth all of the wrath upon it to fix it. And God knew this, the only way I'm going to fix the darkness and fracture of sin is to pour out all my lethal anger upon the reality of that which destroys the beloved. And I'm going to pour it out on my son because of love. He looked at us as friends. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe upon him would not perish but have everlasting life. So what was the wrath? Is it the physical pain and the anguish? That's definitely a part of it. But it's every individual story and the anguish that each of us feel because of our own sin that we have done and all the sin that has been done to us and all of the things that we should be doing that we're not doing. He's taking upon all of it. Folks, slow down for a minute and think about all of those stories. The anguish that we experience, the physical pain because of sin, the emotional pain. My uncle, who two weeks ago was looking at his wife and beaming and they were going great places. Then she gets sick. It goes into a second week. They go to the hospital and begin to find out the reason she's throwing up is there's an obstruction in her abdomen. And she's actually now at stage four pancreatic cancer. Wham! 
Jesus sees it, he knows it, and he's acting to deliver from it. It's the wrath of every individual story, but here's the greatest aspect of wrath is in order for us to be fixed, the Father whom Jesus has existed in all of eternity with the love of the Father flowing to the Son and the love of the Son flowing to the Father and the love of the Father flowing to the Spirit and the love of the Spirit flowing to Jesus and to the Father, an incredible community of love. At this moment, the Father was going to make his Son sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we may become the righteousness of God. He was going to have the Father's face turned away from him. And all of that was the cup that he is about to drink. Folks, Good Friday is so good because it's about fundamentally and finally conquering that which makes our lives so bad. So right now, we're going to celebrate this. I ask right now and invite the communion servers to come forward. And as they move forward, I'm going to ask us to pray. We're going to have a moment where the elements are passed to us. This body and blood of Jesus Christ is going to be passed to us and offered. I'm going to ask you to hold it because we're going to take this together because we are those of faith who God in Christ is working to unite us together. So I'm going to ask you to pray right now and to bring all of our stuff before God on this night of Good Friday that we can experience it. This is a moment and a time where we confess and we bring ourselves to Jesus. So as these elements be passed, hold them, but speak to God in prayer. And then we're gonna see that he has a prayer for us.